Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Narrows podcast. I'm your host, James Ennard, joined by my good friend, Timmy Down. Hi, everyone. Rowan is on the light and the sound. Hi, Rowan. Hi, Rowan. Our guest today is Stan North. But before we get to Stan North, I just want to say hi mm-hmm. to the two ladies um, in the back there, Deirdre and Grace, two sisters from Mortagrassil that subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. And uh, going forward, we're going to invite patrons down mm-hmm. into the studio to observe a podcast, mm-hmm. meet and greet and all that. And I think it's fantastic as well to bring you down and show you exactly where your money is going and the funding and everything that we're yeah. doing here. And, and just give you an opportunity to join us as well and have a chat. Yeah. It's very important. Exactly. Yeah. So um Timmy made sure not to drive the Maserati tonight. <laughs> so uh, that's where the money's really going. I'm only joking, there's only high aces. Um but look we'll get hot we'll hop straight into it. So Stan for the people that don't know you, will you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Well my name is Stan Knott. Um which it's, is it's not Stan North, it's Stan no, Knott. Yeah. That's all, that's my fault because I keep staying North. Oh, is it? Everybody. I've been, <laughs> okay. I've, been ca- I've been called worse. I've okay. been called worse. Um both my parents are from Cork. My dad is from Sullivan's Key. My mum is from uh, Greenwood Avenue. But I was reared in England. Um I was born in England and I was educated there until I was eleven. My part? I was in London in the place called the Elephant and Castle. The last stop on the north. I chicken point. wings there last there week. There you go. Nice. Happy days. <laughs> so we came back to live here when I was about 11 and we went to live in Toker and I grew up in Toker and I spent lots of good days out in Toker. Um, and I went to school in Cloyster Cree Street and then I joined the Navy where I met Deirdre's husband. <laughs> Small world, isn't it? Yeah. And I spent 20 young years with the, with the Navy and I came out of there in 2000 and... 17, the very start of 2017, um, and I've pretty much been self-employed since then. Let's go way back. When you were growing up in London, what was it like growing up? What was school like? I had your siblings, mother and father, what was it? Uh, yeah, so I'm a twin. I have a twin sister, and then I have a younger brother. He's two years and two weeks younger than me, and then I have a sister, another sister who's a year younger. Um... I mean, London was strange in lots of ways, right? It was strange because it's quite restricted. We used to come home here every year on, uh, for the school holidays in the summer. The schools in England only get six weeks summer holidays. So we used to come home for the full six weeks and we loved Ireland because of the freedom. We could get up here at nine o'clock in the morning and go out and mm. go slogging or go up to Lee Fields or whatever. Nobody cared where you were. Why was it not like that in England? Well, in the, the Elephant Castle is a really built up area. Oh, okay, so uh, it's not so, safe. 
Well, I, I mean, the answer to that is no, it wasn't the safe. But we had a very restricted area. Like, it was all high rise, um, where we were in a place called Wansey Street. And it's hard to put a distance on it, but like, we couldn't really go more than three or four minutes from the house in a kind of big circle, you know. Yeah. There was a little playground and we played soccer there and I played cricket there. So you'd be delighted, you know, because you were asking yeah. me earlier on. But it was fairly restrictive, you know. Um, we moved a lot, uh, which I suppose at the time I maybe wasn't that aware of. So when we went to live in England first, we went to a place called Castleford up in Leeds. I have very few memories of that. And then we moved back down to London into a place called Queen's Buildings, which was effectively a slum. We moved out a couple of years later because they were knocking it and we moved to a place called Date Street. And we moved out of that three years later because they were knocking that as well. <laughs> and then we moved to this place called Wansey Street and we were there for the last three years before we came back. What was your mother and father doing over there? Were they working there? My dad is a painter and decorator. Um, and... Uh, was his employment he went over, where you went over your first day? Yeah, it's, it's funny now because it's it's been a while now since I spoke about this and it just got a little bit funny in my head there. Yeah. So the story is that my we were we, my mum was pregnant in 1965. They weren't married. My mum was very young. My dad was relatively young, 20. My mum was only 18, not even. Uh, and they were both shipped off to London separately and mm. they were not to see each other. And my dad was writing to my mum and they weren't forwarding the letters. And then they came, my mum came home after we were born. <clears throat> and she, my dad was home and they met and anyway they were told they would get married a week later no they loved each other to bits to be honest yeah. which is what that was the the kind of forced marriage wasn't a problem but my dad hated London he mm. hated every second of us um, and I only found out recently he was homeless in London for a week at one stage well um, and Good then time. he was he was under like my dad isn't somebody to tell you tells you a whole lot so yeah. like what I know is really through my mum and then just you know little bits of conversations with him but he did. He hated London. He absolutely hated it. And you know, if you, I, I, you know, and one of one of one of the things I did during my process of trying to get well when I was dealing with the mental health issue, and I, said, and I put that in the past tense now, but it's still. I looked at my dad's setup, um, and like my dad was twenty three or twenty four when my baby sister was born, and he went from living in digs in London. To living with a wife and four children pretty much overnight mm. and that has to be challenging yeah. do you know what i mean that has to be challenging we'll talk about a time there where it was actually very common for people that had been pregnant out of marriage yeah. to yeah. have to have to get the boat yeah because of the shame yeah. of us and the, the yeah, control yeah. catholic church had in this country is unbelievable it's crazy and you look at it now and you just think what a load of nonsense but it was, it was reality like, it was reality, like yeah. but that's yeah. still instilled in people that's that form of religion that you can't oh, do this if you yeah. do this you're you're going to hell and that's instilled in the older generation still no even myself when religion was massive thing in school you know i remember making my communion confirmation and sitting in the chair and saying oh, terrified literally terrified going up to the priest and, and because i thought i was going to go on fire yeah. <laughs> because of robbing a bottle of milk outside the neighbor's door or something like that you know yeah. but you know you have to think about you know the mothers that had to go to england that didn't have the fathers by their side like oh, what yeah. became of them what became of the kids you know when you're talking about your father there here in london you know what i was thinking of shane mcgowan Oh yeah, Shane McGowan. His story is amazing. Rural well. yeah, Ireland, yeah. Pocan, County Tipperary, very traditional listen, family. I mean, oh, over into London and just did not adapt well. There's yeah. horror stories galore, like, horror stories. My mum's no longer with us, um, and if she was, I probably wouldn't tell you the story. But like when we were born, um, there was a nun came to the hospital to take us away, mm. and only that my mother's sister, who's my aunt, who's passed now, was there on the day, and she's the nun said that they had permission from the guardian. 
to take us. She said, that can't be true because she's living with me and I'm her guardian. Yeah. That's mad. So, I mean, your life story, well, my life story and my sister's could have been completely yeah. different. Like. It's unbelievable. It was a crazy world. Like. There's no, no so two ways about it. You were, you were schooled in England? I was. I was taught Queen's English, uh, James. You, you want me to do the party, please? Do some harm yourself. Go on. Go on. So, I, I, I suppose the reason I have the party piece is I came back to live in Torquay and we were taught Queen's English. We were posh, like, and... Mm. This might surprise you to know, but there wasn't a lot of fellas in talk who spoke Queen's English in oh, 1976. <laughs> so we were kind of... We um, stood up in the Dean Rock Estate. So <laughs> we, <laughs> that's where I lived. That's literally where I grew up, yeah. So we were we were kind of a, to put it politely, a circus act, but to put it unpolitely, we were like a freak show. A fella used to come up in the street and say, literally say to me, just say something, anything, so they could have a giggle. So I think about 15, I subconsciously decided to lose the accent, but you can't lose it fully. Mm. And then I developed this party piece when people say to me, say something, I used to say to them, we have a party in my house next Thursday and I'm going down to the shop to buy 13 perfect bananas. <laughs> and that's about all that's left of the party stage. You know, we laugh about it now, but were you bullied? Well, that term didn't exist when I was a teenager, but I suppose in reality mm. I was like. Um, was it tough? We, we got a high, Do you know what? I, I, and I don't like to overstate it. Talk was a tough place to grow up. It was mm. a tough place to grow up no matter where you, you know, what your background mm. was. It was too many kids in one place. Um, you know, people would say there wasn't a lot to do. We'd loads to do. And there was a football club that I was a member of. I was never involved in the gap. We were involved in the youth club. We did the community games. were amazing. Like, but it was tough. I mean, there was lots of people around there. You know, I was blessed that the people... People I piled within, I suppose, they, all their parents, like my parents, you just didn't get into trouble. Like, that wasn't the, the way of the world. But there was there was lots of mad stuff going on. And I won't mention names now, but there was a couple of well-known cork criminal families came through around that time, you know. Yeah. And there was gangs of them hanging around Tolker and every now and then the guards would be out, you know, moving people on. But they were moving us on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it was tough. And, and being the English accent was tough and also like we we stood out I mean people I don't know people see me I always dressed unusually yeah. um, so you resemble uh, dairy milk I've seen I've uh, seen uh, Brendan O'Carroll doing stand up oh yeah day, yeah yeah but he came on with a purple suit and he said I'm dressed like a fucking dairy oh, milk oh yeah 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 I remember <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, so and, and I suppose that was the thing we were encouraged particularly by my mum to just be who you were you know yeah and it was a catch 22 you know, I wanted to be who I was and express myself the way I wanted to be, but also, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're conscious of the of the negative stuff that comes from that. And and also, I think I spoke to you about this before, Timmy, like my self-esteem was on the floor at that stage. I didn't know mm. that, but uh, my self-esteem was on the floor at that stage due to other stuff that was going on in my childhood, you know. And then you're kind of caught between, it's a catch-22, you know. I want to go up and dress and talk and do the things I want to do. Um, but you know, you know, you're going to get negative attention, and then the negative attention is kind of like sticking a dagger into a wound, you know. Yeah, do you know, um, around this time as well, um, you were in Korea Three. I was. Well, Did your research by fair play? <laughs> well, you just mentioned two minutes ago. So, uh, <laughs> what, what was school like for you? Were you involved in sports? Were you good in school? Like, what was going on that time? That's a really interesting question, actually. So, the first thing is that when I came back, I'm going to blow my own trumpet here. No, when I came back to live here. Um, I was 11 and I had the mathematical ability of a 15-year-old and the English ability of a 16-year-old. Well done. Yeah, so the school I went to in England had this, so primary school in England, they only do the three R's, really. They do other bits, but it's predominantly reading, writing and arithmetic is the, is the third R. 
Um, and what they did in the school was they took um, people that were good at maths and English out of the class and gave them extra tutelage. Now, I wasn't the only one. There was like uh, probably 10 or 12, you know, and you don't think anything of it. You're a child, like. Um, but when I came back here, because I had no Irish, they held me back a year. I went into fifth class in Sullivan's Key when I should have been in sixth class. Um, and I can vividly remember uh, in sixth year, sixth class, whatever you call it, primary school, and the teacher was doing fractions and he mopped the board and I was doing them in my head. So I was bored out of my bonds. Yeah. And then when I went to Cree Street, um, I went to Cree Street really because they wanted me for the cross-country running. I didn't have to do Irish over there, which was great. And the first three years up to the intercept were okay. You know, I was, you know, I suppose I was a bright student, but I wasn't the best student. <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. I wasn't really interested in education. I really wasn't interested in, in any kind of authority. And we were the first year in Cree Street to wear a full uniform. That to me was an unmitigated disaster. Like, Don't wear school uniforms in England? No, in, in, no, we didn't in England, but in Cree Street, there was no school uniform. We, so what they had done is they'd introduced it bit by bit. So the, the lads were in sixth. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> literally. So the guys were in sixth class or sixth year weren't wearing any uniform and then the fifth years were wearing a jumper and, and we were the first year to wear the full uniform, you know? Now you look back at it and you think, like, what a load of nonsense. But to me, that was a huge deal, like being yeah. forced to wear a uniform. And then up until... The intercert year, things were okay. And then um, my, my results, my exam results at the end of second year, going into, you know, the way it used to go, you went from second year to fourth year. Can anybody explain that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my results were poor. My dad said to me, something has to give. So at that time, I was playing football and running, and I was out training, training or playing a match or running a race seven days a week. I was training with the football club two nights a week, training with what the football Ed club? Everton. Oh, yeah. And I was training with the Togra Athletic Club three nights a week, and I was training after school with the school two nights a week as well. You know, you train after school, yeah. go home, and then go straight on. So I went into the school, and uh, I told them I was giving up the running, um, and they didn't take it very well, if I'm honest. But, you know, I, they, I said I have to, and so I gave it up. And and then we went to a meeting with the Togra Athletic Club, and on the Monday I was called into the, the principal. This is a really good example of how my brain works, right? So the fellow who was running the, the running the running team was a fellow called Mr. Dog, and then he called me in and they, they had a chat and they said, you know, you told us you were giving up the running. And I said, I am. And he said, but you told us you were giving up the running, but you're still running with talk. And I said, yeah, but I said I was giving up running with the school. Anyway, they said to me, look, if you're not going to run, um, if you're going to run with talk, then you have to run with the school. And I said, well, that means if I don't want to run with the school, I don't have to run with talk. Is that right? And they were, pardon my French, no, they were fucked. Mm. <laughs> so I packed in the two of them. And with hindsight, that was an absolute disastrous move. What disastrous move so what I know now with hindsight is that all that activity was was a was a form of running away mm. from um, from the, 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 the trauma I was dealing with at home very difficult relationship with my father um, was there alcoholism in the home no actually there wasn't just a no. fractious relationship yeah no my, my dad was never really a drinker my mum never drank at all I suppose back yeah. then too you had um, it was the older generation the love thing was a massive thing where they just could not show love. Yeah. You know, they couldn't show emotion. You were never told you were loved. Back is he then. old school? He is old school. Is he still alive? He is, yeah. Have you got a good relationship with him today? Is, I did you speak no, to him? I have no relationship. Go away with that. Yeah. When was the last time you spoke to him? That's a really interesting question, actually. So the last time I spoke to him was the week my mum died in January of 2000 and... You get the year right, 2018. The last time he spoke to me was about two years before that. Mm. Because what he did the week of the funeral was when I asked him a question, he answered somebody else. <laughs> Great, well, that. Uh, it's tough, right? Like. It's really sad. I know is because it's just sad, like. 
It is. And sad. I mean, look, it's not a nice subject. And, you know, do I wish it was some other way? Yes. Do I understand how we've got here? Yes. Do I have huge empathy for my dad? Absolutely. I mean, I could do a month of podcasts on my dad's life story mm. and, I, and I only know a smidgen of it. Like, so he had, he's had a lot of challenges and mm. has a lot of challenges and he's old school mm. and, you know, he's not going to, and I always say this all the time. My mum, that generation didn't have the opportunities we had. So yeah, look, there's three of us here, three men and Roman yeah. hiding in the corner there. I'm just going to pretend you're not here for a second. And here we are chatting away about this kind of thing. Like, my yeah. dad was 35, 40, 45. Yeah. Fucking no way he was talking to Be calling us pussies, I'd say, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I must have been really tough. Well, a shortlifter. Yeah, I know, I <laughs> This am. is terminology. Mm. Like, yeah, must have yeah. been really tough to be able to bottle all that stuff up and hold it together or not being able to speak to somebody like... Like nowadays, it's 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 okay and it's common enough to yeah. speak to a, a counselor or a psychotherapist and speak about whatever's going on for you, you know. But back then, like you, were, back mm. then you were put into a home, oh, and, you know. And so that's kind of part of my dad's story. Not that he was in a home, but there was mem- it was a, there was a member of his family who was in mm. that scenario. Like, yeah, I tell you what, like, so obviously it's a very difficult relationship. But I have huge admiration for a couple of things about my dad. Mm. And one of them is his mental strength because you've just said it. Like mm. he has dealt with an untold number of what we would consider crisis situations. Yeah. Um, he's never, as far as I'm aware, he's never spoken to anybody. Certainly not professionally about it, but he's managed to not just survive it, but he lives his life. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? No, you know, people would say he can't be happy. That's not the, the question. Is is he? Can he cope? And he can. Yeah. So his mental strength is incredible. And during my own journey, one of the things, you know, that I came to realize is, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a bit of that in me as well. There's a quote you know I mean? on the wall there uh, from Gabo Mate in our podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, um, I can't see it now because Ron is in the way. But he basically says that trauma doesn't begin, didn't begin with no one person. So there's nobody to blame for it. But at the same time, we all have to take responsibilities for it and heal together. But in your father's case, like, it's great that you have the majority and we were all to look at him and say, you know what, he through a tough time too. Yeah. And what was his parents go through? And what, so it's passed on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Eventually, eventually you're going to have to fucking, right, not passing this on to my kids, you know. Mm. I'm going to have to deal with this and break the cycle. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's, that's sorry, you know, that's that, what happens, you know. Yeah, and when I made that decision when I had kids. You know, mm-hmm. I made conscious decisions that I wasn't going to do A, B, C, D, whatever it was that my, my dad had done. So, for example, you talked about... Um, you know, I mean, I don't think my dad ever said to any of us that he loved us. I could be wrong on that now, like, but yeah. I certainly have no recollection of it ever being said directly mm. to me. Um, what was it like when you left school? Did you move out of home? Did you go working? <laughs> this fella's magic one drawn, has he? My dad <laughs> threw me out of home a week after I was 18. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He was just waiting for the turn to a man. So, no, in. I'll tell you what happened. I wanted to move out when I was 17. Okay. Um, and he told me I couldn't go because I was still his legal responsibility. Yeah, which is a fair mm-hmm. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mates had moved into a place in um, Evergreen Street, um, and sure, it turned out to be not what we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was in and out there a lot. I mean, you know, I wasn't. I, I didn't want to be at home at all, and I was staying there overnight and getting battered when I got home for staying out overnight because I wasn't supposed to be. Anyway, you know, not long before my eighteenth, maybe three months, two months before. The place in Evergreen Road was falling apart and fellas were moving out. And I went home and I had a chat with my mum and, you know, I was saying, I'm not really sure if I want to move in there now because it doesn't look great. And, and she said words along the line, well, you know, your dad doesn't really want you to go anyway. So I told the lads I wasn't moving out and uh, I can see this like it was yesterday. 
stand, sitting in my living room in my mum and dad's house in Lame Lauren Claus and Toker, just shy of midnight. And everyone was gone up to bed and he walked into the room and he said to me, what did I tell you a year ago? And you asked when you told me you wanted to move out. And I said, you told me I couldn't move out because you was legal, your legal responsibility. And he said, no, I told you were gone when you were 18. I want you gone in the morning. Mm. Sad, no? So Would I you, moved out that night. You wouldn't dream fun. of saying that to your kid today, she wouldn't? Not a chance. There was murder now when I left, apparently. But, you know, he didn't, mm-hmm. again, he didn't see, it's hard to, I, mean, I don't like trying to get into his head, but he didn't see anything wrong with that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So the answer to your question was... Um, you left home at 18? I left home at you 18. moved into Evergreen live, Street. Into Evergreen Street. We then moved down to a place called Greenfield Lane, which is just around the corner. It links from uh, where Nano Nagel is now down into the back of the tax office. Oh, very good. I'm walking, over, I'm walking over to Mary Street. <laughs> oh, there you go, around the corner. Yeah, yeah. So Greenfield Lane is there from the 1850s. Um, and we moved in there, and this is a great story. Five us moved into... A two-bedroom house, one of the bedrooms was smaller than the other because when the house was empty a few years earlier, the, the, the crowd next door had knocked the wall in and robbed six feet of the bedroom. We, uh, and we, and <laughs> the rent was 50 pence a week between us, 10 pence a week each, <laughs> which we get what you pay for, lads. Yeah. No toilet, <laughs> no shower. It was an outside toilet and there was a Belfast sink. Um, and it, yeah, I wouldn't say it was falling apart, but it wasn't amazing, but we didn't give a shit. Mm. All we wanted was somewhere to to crash and we fellas around seven nights a week and we're smoking our brains out. We had a deal with all our mates, come any night you want, but make sure you bring a notch. Mm. Um, and we had a great time though. Were you working? I was working part-time in Duns at that stage. I've been working part-time in Duns since I had gone into fifth year. Duns was a great employer back then. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's probably still the same. I don't know, but the money was good and they always were very good for part-timers and I made some amazing friends in there and had great times in that. Um, and then when I was out at home, about 18 months, maybe less. Um, gosh, things were gone. My head was gone at that stage, James. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you know, the situation with my dad was bad. And then Eileen was pregnant and fucking hell, it was, it was all sorts of mad stuff. Eileen is your wife? She's my ex-wife now. She's yeah. your ex-wife yeah, now. Is, yeah. is she from Talker as well? No, she's from uh, up by the South Family Hospital. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The place Kilbrogan Avenue. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, just there was a lot of pressure and then I collapsed. Uh, I remember that, I can see that like it was yesterday as well. I was going up Barrack Street and I saw my mum ahead of me and I just collapsed. I was mm-hmm. six stone. I was 19 and a half years of age. I was oh, six stone. Like, no, right. no, 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 I was always a great home breed anyway. Like, yeah. Which I hadn't eaten properly for. So, like, I used to go to my mum's place every, nearly every Sunday I'd go up, but if my dad was there, I wouldn't go in. Like, I'd leave and she was there nearly every Sunday. So, I had not, in the year and a half I was out of home, I'd lucky if I had five proper meals. We were living on smash, yeah. instant smash. We were robbing her all the dunce with yeah. the rubbish. We used to broke the last night with the rubbish bag of it. So, do you when your ex got pregnant? Yeah. Did you move in with her or did you get married or how did that work? Um, so, we didn't move in immediately. Oh, fucking hell, he's, I'm telling you, like, magic wand. Just why I'm doing the job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, like, there was a lot of there was a lot of tension around that time. Yeah. My, my mum was traumatised because she was reliving her own trauma, which I didn't realise at the time. It yeah. would have been a maturity, Deirdre, that uh, I know I realised that. My dad was brilliant in that situation. He was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Eileen's mum and dad were very religious. Her dad was very close to being a priest. They didn't take it so well. Um, so my mum hadn't taken well, they hadn't taken well, and then my mum and her mum got together and, oh, Jesus Christ, it turned into a fucking, it was a, pretty much a nightmare. So we moved in together. My dad was born on the 15th of October. 
and we moved in together the day after our christening. And if you don't mind, I won't get into the story about the christening. That was a mad story altogether. That was kind of a, a breaking point, you know. Can you give us a really in a nutshell now? Well, in a nutshell, there was a, there was a standoff in the church. And when we came out, her mum said to Aline, come on, you get into the car. She wasn't driving, get into the car and come home. And Aline said, I'm not going home. And she said, well, if you don't come home tonight, you're not coming home at all. So that's fucking real Coronation Street stuff, isn't Coronation it? Coronation Street stuff, yeah. But back then, back then you were told how it was and that's it. Because mm. it's a similar situation would have happened in my own family. My mother, you know, being told that, that when I was born and that if my grandparents would take care of me and bring me up as their own child, you know, yeah. if, if she didn't marry my father at the time. Yeah. And that was the reality of it, you know. Um, but they never, t- they didn't never turn up their back on her, you know. But um, she suffered severely then with her mental health over a relationship like that. Yeah. So even my own mum, my mum got married, I got married, got pregnant on my brother Keith when she was 17. And so she had to move to Dublin then to marry my dad mm-hmm. when they were probably never compatible anyway. Yeah. And ended up staying together for a long time and having four kids. But it just all happens. It was either, like, mm-hmm. it was either that or that. Modern baby homes, you know, or England. Yeah, and I mean, you said it a while ago. I mean, certainly not on my side, because so, certainly my mum and dad were never religious. I was giggling at you a while ago, talking about your communion, your confirmation. I made my communion three weeks before I made my confirmation. Because <laughs> we didn't, <laughs> no we went to a, a non-denominational school in England, so there was no communion. And then when we, what happens, we were coming up to the confirmation and I, I went home one day and I said, so they're all talking about this communion thing. <laughs> so yeah. we had to, it was accelerated. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a real religious thing on my side. Yeah. Um but having said that, there was a lot of trauma on my side. I mean, my mum was really traumatised yeah. and being re-traumatised. And I'm sure my dad was as well, even though he was much calmer about it. My mum yeah. was devastated. Like, um, And then on Eileen's side, there was the, the, a religious element to it. I wouldn't say that, the, you know, her mum and dad were fanatically religion, but religious, but there was an element of that. Yeah. But also then there was this this family thing where, you know, people come together to try and mm. defend Eileen's situation or whatever, you know, and it just became like, it's like a coronation. I have never described it like that, actually, but it was yeah. like a coronation street. Yeah. Like, like you never watch these standards or coronation streets where there's a christening or a funeral or a wedding fight. goes, <laughs> yeah. you know, clean through and they finish and go home. Well, I, I don't watch those shows at all, but I know exactly Neither do I, but I've seen enough yeah. glimpses of them to know how it goes. Yeah. But anyway, if we speed it on a little bit. So after the christening, you have a baby, you have a partner. What happened then? We moved into a flat in Tolker. Um, it was a council flat. It was in it was in a family member's name, and we we kind of winged into that. Yeah. We moved in there in November, and then I joined the naval service on the 9th of December because I'd applied for it earlier in the year, and I got the shout. What age, yeah? Um, I went in in December '85, so I was just gone past my 20th birthday. I was two months old in December '85. Yeah. Young, young. What was it like in the eighties or in the navy? In the navy the was brilliant for me, and it, it, again, no, it's only with hindsight. Well, not just with hindsight, I think, because you know, a lot of awareness helps you. So, it was a brilliant distraction for me at the time. No, Eileen was in the flat then on her own with, with Adele quite a lot of the time. Um, because we were like, we were we were kept in, do you know what I mean? So we'd get out the weekend on a Saturday from four to seven. Aline would come to Cove, or I'd come up for a, you know, we'd get an odd weekend up and that kind of thing. But what the Navy did for me was it, it um, what's the term I'm looking for? Structure. Yeah, structure. But it, it cocooned me. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because you were so busy, like you're up at five in the morning. Yeah, doing yeah. EMAs as a technical term, early morning activities, and your whole day is mapped out for you. You know, and you're on the move, on the move, on the move, on the move. 
and then you just fall into bed and sleep like a log because you're exhausted. Yeah. Um, but then with hindsight, um, you know, when I when I started when when I started when I was in therapy, you start to learn things. And one of the things I did for a long time when I started dealing with the mental health issue, which got me at forty two actually, um, was I started I started looking at dream analysis because I used to have these really and I still do have really vivid dreams. And there's, I mean, you know, you can look at dreams in lots of ways. And sometimes when you read a dream analysis, it's like looking at a legal letter, you know, it says it can mean this, but it can also mean this. And yeah. they're almost the opposite of each other, you know. But there are common traits in dreams that are kind of, if you want, indisputable. And one of them is that almost every, the vast majority of people's dreams are based in the house they grew up in. And the reason for that is most of your dreams are based in the place you felt the safest during your life. Mm, and all my dreams to this day. I'm based in the naval service. Go away with that. Yeah. That's Normal, amazing. Isn't it? It, it is. No, would you bring up a good point there? Mm. I'd love to have a, I was thinking the same. a psychoanalyst on the podcast yeah. talking about that. <gasps> and there's another good podcast, This Young in Life. <laughs> uh, I'm just laughing there. Something popped into my head. <laughs> well, Carl Young, psychoanalyst. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Young in psychologist, they analyze dreams. But This Young in Life is a great podcast for all yeah. stuff related to that and yeah. it simplifies it. But interesting stuff, isn't mm. it? Yeah. What was the Navy like? You were in there for a long time. So I did 21 years in the Navy. I did, did you have years. a few sprogs, a few kids? <laughs> a few so, so I dealt with born in 85 just before I went in there. Letitia, my second yeah. girl, was born in 89 while I was on my NCOs course. We never said we wouldn't have any more kids. Um, and then, I have to get the years right because I get myself in trouble otherwise. I went to sea in 93 and in, Eileen was pregnant on Stanley in 94. Uh, young Stanley, so we yeah. had three, and then we had a conversation. You know what? Maybe we've enough now at this stage. We were very young, like we weren't we weren't even thirty at that stage. So we made a decision that we wouldn't have any more. And Eileen made, because obviously I was away a lot, like so yeah. I was doing all the planning. So she made a, an appointment with the family planning clinic in in Tucky Street. And when we went into the family planning clinic on in Tucky Street, Eileen had a pregnancy test. This was me having a conversation with them about having having the SNP. What's the technical term for the SNP? Percentage. Percentage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was positive so we went to see this guy and <laughs> fucking laughing oh god love him you know he went through the details he said are you sure you don't want any more kids he said you're very young you know to be making that decision and I just looked at him and he said take that fucking test out of your pocket and, I'm sure <laughs> and he just said okay so we'd fought what was the fourth called the fourth is Jamie Jamie yeah and um, yeah. what year was he born 96. So you were in the Navy for 11 years at that stage. Yep. Did you miss out a lot of the time in the early years of the kids' lives? So so I had always said when I went in, I wasn't going to do 21 anyway because you have the pension at 21. And in my brain, you're working for like half your wages at that stage, right? Yeah. But actually when we got to the to, to that period, so the 21, then we get the, you know, not as good as the maths, which you I'd say. Mm. I came out in 2007. So Stanley was 10, 11 at that stage, and I'd made a decision. So I'd been, at, I'd been in the, on, on the base for four years prior to that. So from the time Stanley was seven and Jamie was five, I'd been at home. And I and I, I'd said to myself, I don't want to miss out on as much as I missed out with the two girls. Mm. I was much younger. And if I'm really honest, at the time, I didn't really feel I was missing out. I was mm. 20, 21, 22, 23. I mean, you're just getting on with it. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and of course, I not you know mad stuff in my head about careers and, and all that. But I did make that decision when I was coming out. That was one of the other reasons I wanted to have the time with the kids and not be ringing them up and saying yeah. happy birthday from, you know, Rat Mullen or, yeah. or wherever it was at the time, you know. So you, you do. You do miss out a bit. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the Navy. And I have to say they're very good at giving credit to, to the wives and partners because, you know, we can't do that job unless they're incredible yeah. people and yeah. they are incredible people. Like, I mean, 
basically for whatever amount of time is it, see, five, six, seven years, and then time your way doing, you know, career courses and other stuff. She read those kids prank on her own. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We, we actually spoke about this last week around, you know, history is full of uh, noble men and heroes and warriors and all these people, but there's no mention the women that actually kept the societies mm-hmm. going when the men were all butchering each other, you know? Well, yeah. you mean it's that old saying, isn't it, behind every great man? Yeah. You know, you don't, you you can't really go out and do whatever it is you want to do with your life, if, especially if you're married, unless there's somebody being. And yeah. thankfully, that's going the other way now as well. And that there's it's lots not of great just, women out there now. And there's lots of great men behind great men. That's yeah. true too, yeah. yeah. But anyhow, listen, um, like, um, at what point in your life did you struggle with uh, your issues around your mental health? And, and how did that progress? Did something happen? Was it was yeah, there so one that, big so thing that, happened? That's, that's a great question. I told my mum when I was seventeen that I that I thought I was depressed, okay. and she said to me, "You're too young." No, that's I'm not being critical of my mum. That was 1982. That was kind of where we were at at that time. Do you know what I mean? But with hindsight, I was definitely really struggling at that stage, and that was not long before I left home. My dad threw me out, and I really struggled for a long time after that. And then there was periods that I can look back on. So my first run at sea in, in 88 on the Emer, I spent a week in my cabin sick when I wasn't sick. And every time I went to sea, I had that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was uh, in 2001, I spent a week in the cabin on the Ashling listening to a Counting Crow song called Amy Hit the Atmosphere over and over and over again. And one of the lines in the song is, um, today is just a day fading into another and that can't be what a life is for. Mm. So it was always there. Were you on meds at that? No, no, I had no diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I had literally had no, it, it, and that's one of the things that, you know, I say to lots of people, it is amazing that you can look back on your life. So I used to say to Eileen, not regularly, but, you know, I definitely said it, you know, more than 10 times, I can feel a big black cloud coming. Mm-hmm. And yet I had no concept that I might have a mental health issue. Any no. suicide ideation or anything no, like that? No, no. I had what they call transient, was it tra- transient suicide thoughts is what I had. So, you they know. They come and go. Huh? They come and go. No, they come and they go like that. So, yeah. you know, I might be driving a car and look at a lorry going yeah. towards me and say, I wonder what happened if I drive into mm-hmm. that. But there's no in, there's no real intention there. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It just comes What's and What's that called? Transient. Transient suicide thoughts. Do you know what? Analyst told me that actually. It, it's actually very interesting because I, I too would, would have had thoughts like that about yeah. driving over the cliff and mm. into whatever. Do you know? Um, and I, I always wondered, did anybody else think like that? And it's mm. a very, very good point to me because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that probably have the same thing going yeah, on. Yeah. And. Like it's it's not it's it's not a really strong thought to really push somebody over the line. Sure, it's yeah. not. No, because in the back of your mind, you know that all right. This is just whoa. It's kind of you know that's just a thought kind of thing. But it's really important for me anyway. It was really important mm-hmm. because I mean I wouldn't have them a lot. But I remember the what the one that struck me the most was when I was on medication. Probably the first time I was ever on medication for mental health, and I came down out of bed one night about three o'clock. I was total insomniac at that stage. And I went to make a cup of tea and the, and the medication was up next to the um, the tea bags. And I remember thinking, Jesus, I could take all of them. No, mm. actually kind of going, Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. But it wasn't long after I went to a talk by yeah. Alan Quinlan, the rugby player. And this oh, is where yeah. the magic is for me mm. in people sharing their stories. So there was three people spoke with that. Alan Quinlan, a guy from, he was down Kerry somewhere. He was a silver servant. He was really interesting. And some psychoanalysis type of kind yeah. of professor something or other. And it was he, the professor, talked about the transient suicide thoughts. Mm-hmm. No, the talk was brilliant. Alan Quinlan was absolutely amazing. 
But that was the big thing I took away from that, as mm. in I don't have to worry yeah. about the fact that three weeks ago, for a split second, I thought, what would happen if I was going to take all of them? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you do, like, it, it can be, well, not, for me, it, it was actually frightening. I'd be interested in finding out a little bit more about that because of the depth of it. Where does it actually come from, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Right? So, has, has Alan Quinlan got his own story? Yeah, yeah, so he was he left out of a Lions. Then. He was left out of a Lions squad, and he was devastated. Like, and went into a deep depression. Is he open about it? Yeah, yeah, that's what he did the talk on. Am I getting mad? Absolutely brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Like, when talk? was that, then? Sorry, James. Go on, when? Sorry. when was that? Did a few years ago. Oh, that's a good few years ago. Was it? Um, I was diagnosed in two thousand six. Didn't really start doing anything until two thousand and eight. Mm -hmm. It's probably. 2011 or 12, mm. give or take somewhere around there. Like. Do you remember about the transient suicidal ideation that comes and goes? Um, a few weeks ago, we were up in Talker at the, up in the bars, uh, watching a, at a Thai boxing event with Shiny, Shiny Kinsler, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago from Dublin. Hi, Shiny. But I was talking to Shiny. Hi, Shiny. I was talking to Shiny. Do you know what I guess? Thoughts. I could be walking down the streets or walking anywhere. And I get this mad thought where somebody's just going to sort me. Some, mm. uh, somebody's going to come up behind me with a bar wow. and wear it offside my head. And it's like, they look over my shoulder or I could be with my wife walking the dogs and I get, somebody's going to come up in the car. If I see yeah. a car pulling in, somebody's going to come up and stab me to death. There's a good reason from, from that. Do you know what I think that comes from? In our previous lives, violence like that would have been yeah, prevalent. It was happened would have been like you know, when you yeah. say previous life, you mean previous life or when you were when I was on? in addiction, like yeah, when yeah, I was in addiction, yeah. I would have been stabbed. There would have been yeah, a lot yeah, of fighting and like, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So, but that hyper vigilant doesn't leave yeah. you. I think the amygdala, you not know, that part of the brain that it, it knows you're in danger before you know you're in danger. You know, mm -hmm. but I think that part is very strong. Uh, so, but it, it comes and it goes. It just comes. I don't judge it. This guy again was like very. It's always so very it, violent. Yeah. It's really, really interesting you say that because one of the things that I learned in therapy was that. So I did a year of what's called EMDR therapy. Oh, I know the one. Yeah, um, we're going to get Gus Murray on the podcast. Yeah, it, that's a really the, interesting process. So what they do in that with EMDR therapy is they um, replicate your REM sleep process. Yeah. So the science behind it is that when you go into your REM sleep process, that's your, your brain filing away your day, the experiences of the day. But when you've been traumatized, um, that process breaks down and, it, and it, you get, you get a lot of stuff filed incorrectly. And so it's held in your body. Mm. Um, and when I was doing that EMDR therapy for a year, I mean, I, oh, Jesus, I mean, I got a shooting pain out the back of my car from one of the sessions. I'll never forget it as long as I live. The only way I can describe it was like somebody had attacked me with a, I don't know, a saber from fucking Star Wars or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I left an awful lot of stuff out of my body during that, that 12 months. But the thing that became very clear, so that's where the phrase running away came from. She, she said to me at one stage when, you know, she asked me my child and I, you know, I'm telling you there's seven days a week, constant activity, you know. Mm. And she said to me, was there any, any chance you might have been running away? It was like being hit with a baseball bat, you know, when you saw when somebody. Yeah. Anyway, she was saying that because of the childhood experience I had, so I didn't live with my dad until I was four, right, because I was here in Cork. And by the time I was seven, I was terrified of him. And I mean terrified. Like, and I spent my life from the age of five, probably until I was 40-odd years of age, and started to deal with the mental health issue on high alert, but on extreme high alert. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. So, like, for me, sometimes, you know, when you're in really good form, it wouldn't affect you. But other days, it could be the smallest thing would trigger mm -hmm. you. Like, but, so she, she kind of put it to me that, you know, if you're 
let's just say, you know, the line of my mouth is where your nervous system should be operating. I was like at the ceiling, mm -hmm. but that was my norm. Do you know what I mean? Because I'd lived there for so long, that was mm -hmm. my norm. So part of the process with the MDR therapy was to bring mm -hmm. my nervous system back to a close of um, normal thing. And that's 100% true. And that's yeah. so that's a big part of post-traumatic stress disorder as well, as you probably know. Mm. You know, you get these stories about going back to what we were talking about earlier on with Ronan veterans, you know, and they're walking down the street mm. and they hear a big bang. And, you have you three know, levels I mean? there. You have three levels of beta, right? They're brainwave frequencies, right? And the top one, the highest one, three, is when you're hypervigilant, when you're on fight or flight. Yeah. You can't retain information. You can't, you can't logically understand anything because you're constantly watching over your shoulder. I understand that completely because I lived in that for most of my life. You know, then you have the one in between is where, where it's school and you're really trying to focus on the teacher and the other one then better. The lower one is where you're just kind of balanced, relaxed. And then you have alpha and theta and ones underneath that. And they're yeah. meditative kind of areas where people get to in the meditative state. Yeah. When, when they're meditating, you know, when you can change the core beliefs. Yeah. And change all these different things in the background, you know. But a lot of people go through their lives living in that state of being. You know, I did. And meditation was the key like everybody has their own way of dealing with some people med um, medication and some people meditation, some people therapy, some people understanding, philosophy you know, and stuff. You know, um, on the 18th of January, we've got uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kork coming on the podcast via Zoom. Yeah. But he's booked, The Body Keeps the Score, which we've referenced here yeah, numerous yeah, yeah. times. But he talks about meditation and mindfulness being the key. Dance, art... You know, drama, all these things, you know, um, anything that kind of brings people together, that kind of reconnects your yeah. body with your, your mind with your body, yeah. you know. And also connects you with other people. I saw Paul Merson, the ex-footballer, interviewed on Sky News a couple of months ago, and he said something that I, I, I'll tell you now, I will never forget it. Mm. I think I said this to you before to me. He said, addiction wants you on your own. I swear to God, it's I, nearly, true, isn't it? I nearly fell off the sofa. No, I've never been in addiction, in addiction mm. right? But to me, the mental health is the same thing. So when I'm not well in my head, and certainly back a long time ago when I was really unwell and I had no idea what was going on, it wants you on your own so that, mm. you know, those experiences of being in a cabin on my own for a week, sure, it's feasting on me. Yeah. Mm. It's feasting on me, you know mm. what I mean? So, but for me then, Timmy, it's a combination of lots of things. So I, you know, I don't meditate actually. I've just been talking about it. I don't actually meditate in the way I used to meditate. But I go to the Kingsley in the morning and what I decided to do there a couple of months ago is my last 10 minutes in the Kingsley, I just stand in the hydro pool looking out over the Rivoli and that's a form of meditation for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I practice gratitude. I do journaling. Some, if anyone's listening, oh, there's a mental health issue. saying, geez, I'm never going to be able to yeah. do all that. But creativity, James, yeah. like for me, I started writing when I was dealing with a mental health issue and I didn't even know I had a mental health issue prior to my diagnosis I started writing and I know categorically now 100% nobody will ever tell me any different that I started writing because I needed to express the pain that was in me mm. it was something in me said this is the fuck this what is we, the way what, what were you writing I started writing short stories the first story I ever wrote you couldn't make this crap up <laughs> it's called Grey Skies and it's written about a guy standing on the top of a cliff in the pissing rain, thinking of jumping, and he doesn't. And that's like, 
So a lot of my writing in the early days was really dark. Mm. I would have said at the time I, that it wasn't autobiographical. Jesus, when I look back on it, no, no. Like, have you got them in a collection? Um, I have. I have six of them. Did I give you one of them yeah, recently? Yeah. yeah. So I have six of them in this little thing called One Short Story to Be Told. Um, uh, and I have them at home. I, <laughs> I've, I haven't done anything with them now for years. I've just left them there. Um, but actually, I'll tell you now, before I go on to anything else, I wrote a story that's in one of those books. And the story came to me one night when I was sitting in my bedroom doing the morning pages, which I was supposed to do in the morning. I was doing them at seven o'clock at night, right? To, like, is there, a, I can't be prosecuted for anything I say. Okay? No. So we had a guy called to the house. My missus had him in the, the, the room, the bedroom next door. He was putting a dodgy multi-channel box for us, right? Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. The black box. And I was scribbling yeah. away and he said something. And whatever happened, my, my, I just wrote down, there's a criminal in my house at the moment. <laughs> 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 and that became the opening line of a story, right? And the, <laughs> the story was about a kid, and I left the sex of the child, the gender of the, the child, deliberately vague. Yeah, living in a in a house where they were being sexually abused. Now I was never sexually abused, right? So that's yeah. why I was convinced it wasn't autobiographical, right? Mm. And when I finished the story, titles are really hard, and I was trying to think of a title for it, and I came up with a title called Home. And five years later, I read the story, went, oh, my God. Mm. Forget the sexual abuse element of the story. Everything else in the story, the fear that child was experiencing in that story, I didn't cry, you know. Yeah. That was me. Yeah. That was me. Did you and, find and it, I um, it home. Like, did did, did you find the therapeutic? I would honestly say to you that if I hadn't started writing in creative, I'm not sure I would have come through it. But even like... Um, People that suffer with depression and other mental illnesses yeah. and mental health issues, journaling is something that's massive. Not, you know, to be able to express like massive, you express yourself on paper. But even art, like I have a art set at home. You know, I have like a, a clear plastic box like that over in the corner, and I have my canvases in there, and my oil paints, my watercolors and stuff. But you know, when you're fucking demented, when you're even when I was doing my painting apprentice, I spoke about this recently. When I do so, and I play the PlayStation every so often as well, makes it you, you you do nothing but think about what you're actually doing. So my belief is that we're all on this planet to be creative, and people say to me that's bullshit. But actually, if you think about it, we have this thing in our heads that being creative has been like my brother, right? Yeah. Fucking superstar, amazing painter, or you know, I don't know, Sinead O'Connor or Joseph O'Connor or brother, whatever, right? That's not that. That's part of it, right? Yeah. But we're all creating our own life. I mean, mm. we put this studio together, and I'm saying, you, that's, you know, like you're creating something. If you're yeah. raising a family, you're creating a home. You know, like I, I worked with guys in the Navy, military organization, that say, I'm not a bit creative. We should have designing training courses and delivering mm. training courses. That's creative. It depends on how you look at it, right? But I'm a disciple of a, of a, of a woman called Julia Cameron. She has a book called The Artist's Way, which is about getting in touch with your creative self, right? And I practice her three practices continually as best I can. And when I'm doing those, which I'm doing at the moment, I am always in great form. And I will go to my grave telling everybody who ever wants to hear me saying it. Does, I don't care what the creative practice is, whether it's a jigsaw or I made a castle out of a cardboard box on Saturday morning, right? Like a, like a child, but the joy of it, yeah, or whether yeah. it's, you know, pottery or painting or drawing or writing or whatever else it is, right? There's scientific proof that when you're doing that, your brain goes into a completely different space and it's a healing space. Mm. So whether you're drawing or writing or creating something, 
directly or indirectly related to whatever is going on with you, whatever the trauma is or whatever the shame is or the guilt is, you're healing just by being in a creative space. I was listening to a podcast last week. Here's another plug for another podcast that didn't narrow on. Philosopher- listen to the two Norries, listen to the other ones. Philosophize this. They complement what we, sp- what we speak about really, but actually. The philosophy of creativity. Simone Beauvoir, I think. I've heard that name. Right, actually. but she was talking basically in a nutshell, um, Creative people are unhappy with their current life, their, their, their social context. So they create stuff to, to mm. make up meaning and to make it more bearable. She's an existentialist philosopher. No, I, I, I and people that, are, people that are content with their lives and con- happy with their surroundings, they're less creative because they don't feel the need to actually mm. improve everything. Do you know what I mean? I just thought it was interesting. No, way I, and looking I think at there's it, like, some truth in that. So like I, like I was super, and I am still super creative, but if, I, if I'm not feeling great, like we all have things that we can go to and, and I'm very fortunate. Now I have a lot of things I can go to and a lot of people I can go to, right? That doesn't mean I don't fall down the well every now and then I do. Mm. But if I'm feeling agitated, I can go and do a, and I do lots of different creative things now. Some days, you, you know, writing can be really tough, but I might create a bit of, a bit of art on the, the computer or I, you know, I might go and get out a canvas and sleep. It'll always, always feel better afterwards. Always. Does the black cloud creep up in you every now and then or is it a distant memory? <sighs> no, I wish it was. Um, you know, for a long, long time, James, I was adamant that I would, I'd find a cure, but I don't think you do find a cure. That's just mm. my experience. You just, lo- you just learn to be able to, Yeah, life gives you tools to be able to deal with. Um, and one of the most important tools to have within your life is acceptance around whatever way you're feeling at any moment and surrendering to it, you know. Um, as a fighter, as somebody that fought every way up in my life, as you know, yeah. when I surrendered into the way I was feeling, you know, based on the trauma that I experienced as a young child, not knowing what it actually was, my life changed. It was tough. There was a lot of shame there that was passed on to me generational shame there was a lot of fear guilt it was all passed on you know it was passed on from the church it was passed on from different school whatever it doesn't matter but if you can just look at it right don't don't start analyzing whatever's going on in your head or whatever's going on here in your tummy or whatever just surrender it and say this is happening to me no and you're taking the power out of it in terms of the initial power and it gets easier and easier and easier but if you ruminate on that thought, you will make things a hundred times worse because you will ingrain this planted thought within your mind that it'll just want to come up and up and up and up and up. And I don't know it, it, we're talking a little bit of science here, but it's very important. It's just acceptance and surrender are two very, very important words. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm on medication since last November. I kind of tipped in and out of it at different times and I was never really happy with it. But I had a really bad month last November. The whole month, like literally, was just, mm-hmm. I took two weeks off. And it was the first November. I'm actually laughing now because yesterday was the first November, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the f- literally the first November, I just was I was I went out for a walk for about four hours. My head was gone, and I spoke to two or three people on the phone. And then I thought, right, I need to take a couple of weeks off. And I took two weeks off, closed everything, um, and I, two weeks later, I was exactly the same. Couldn't get off the sofa. Mm. So I went back to the doctor, back to the therapist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we went on went on medication. And this time, you know, we got it right, and I'm and I'm on it, and I've no notions of coming off it. To be honest with you, yeah, absolutely sure would, not. Yeah. Why would I? Um, I still have, you know, I get the odd dip. 
I keep a, a mood journal every night. Um, and the last couple of months, there was, you know, ups and downs and a couple of really tough days. Yeah. Today is my 20th or 21st successively, what I would call excellent day. Um, in that period, last Sunday, I was exhausted and I did nothing, but that was just tiredness. Yeah. yeah. Um, Isn't it great though? It's brilliant. And mm. like, I, what, what, so, you know what, for me, what happens is we get, We'll say we I get complacent, right? Mm. So at the moment, because I'm doing this journaling thing in the morning from the Julia Cameron thing, the morning page, on the top of that, I write down the same things. So I've, I've got them written down for tomorrow morning. The artist waits for you. If I'm doing the walking and the artist date and the, the morning pages and getting to the gym and prioritizing those things, then I know I'm good. What happens is when you feel really, when I feel really good, I start to get complacent. I leave them going. Then you start, you're going down that slippery slope. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then before you know it, you're gone. So like today, I was doing, you know, I was busy tipping away, doing lots of things, and I had to take stuff into a client of mine, in, in, and I'm in Glasheen on the south side. The posh part of Toker. <laughs> the very posh part of Toker. You could throw a stone from my house to Toker. Well, you're, you know you're destroyed by students, <laughs> yeah, <probably>. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I decided I was one, she was, she's in 98th Street, which is in behind Lennox's. Yeah, and I walked in, and I walked back because the walk is priority. Yeah. And I think. You know, one of the, I, I like with hindsight, hindsight is such a wonderful thing. I became self-employed predominantly because I didn't want to work for anybody else, right? Yeah. Um, and that's part of me. I'm kind of anti-authoritarian and I don't want to be for people telling me what to do. But actually there was something else going on in my brain telling me that if I really wanted to get well, I had to be in control of what I was doing. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, you know, the blessing for me is that I don't have to get up at seven o'clock in the morning and turn up at a factory at eight o'clock. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's, you know, there's yeah. great money in it mm -hmm. and lots of fellas love it. But that wouldn't, that, that, that kind of life would mean, make it more difficult for me to do the morning pages and to yeah. do the creative stuff that keeps me really, really well. You and know what, what I mean? You're self employed. So what are you doing today? Like in, in this moment in your life? So I'm, oh, Jesus, how long have you got? About two minutes. So I've got I've got two two strands to the same business, a printing embroidery business. One is um, geared towards businesses and the defence forces. The other one is geared towards my own creativity of a whole range of pure cork products, mugs, t-shirts. We have, have, you have that stuff. Yes, yeah. I'm working on a poetry collection, which is nearly done. Mm -hmm. And uh, yesterday I wrote the final word in a kid's book that I've been working on for 11 years. Not the book, but the, the whole idea. Uh, I have a collection of art pieces that I'm trying to find a place to do an exhibition for. I've got a new video coming out uh, next week. It's a Christmas song. I can't tell you more than that about it. It's a classic Christmas song rewritten in <laughs> by, by Stan Knott in my mad fucking way I do it. So, yeah, I've loads going on. And you did it. Uh, and I, I want to say this as well, right? Uh, we're in November now. Yeah. So you're gonna, we're going to collaborate and get a few Toonaries podcast mugs. Yeah. Uh, if people want to stick in orders to us via email, contact at the tonariespodcast.com. Yeah. We'll take a list of orders and we'll link with yourselves and we'll get yeah. them sent out to people for Christmas. Yeah, I so, yep, yep, yeah, no so we I'll might be delighted to help. Yeah, so people want to have inquiries about that, yeah. give us an email, not Instagram, email. <laughs> because it's yeah, more manageable. It's more they? manageable to do via the email. Look, I, I do a couple of images and I get them to roll and you can throw them yeah. up and, exactly, and exactly. a bit of fun with it. Like. You made a great video about Timmy's wife, Nicole, a few months ago. Oh, she made you take off your shoes coming into the house. I tell her I laughed was, at that. that was, I mean, she's such a great sense of humour. Yeah. Like, and that, that, that was such fun. Yeah. But that's kind of how my brain works, James. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got one in my head at the moment. And I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but you know the way we're opening up with the COVID thing and we've got these different restrictions in different places. So what I've been wondering, 
uh, is like, what's the protocols of trying to shift someone in a nightclub? Mm. <laughs> I know, I uh, That's a good one. So I've Is got, there a bunker uh, in between? Uh, oh. Well, you see, no, no, no I can't He's give away too much information, uh, but that'll be coming up. But the one with um, mm. Nicole, that was, I mean, she's just got such a great sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, he, she's well, got someone. Was, yeah. Timmy said to me, you, you'll have to take your shoes off now before you come in. I <laughs> kind of looked at him. Your man took off his shoes here to add socks. To add socks. I always have <laughs> had socks and life's way too short for yeah. matching socks, lads. Yeah, I make but sure when I call up to Timmy. He looked at me and he says. good socks on. Like, <laughs> he looks at me and says. Yeah, what would you do if you had a hole in your sock? Like, you'd you're die. in trouble. You'd be mortified. Yeah. Yeah. The dog be looking at her now. Trust me, any of better than him shoes. She came out to the, towards the door just after I took the shoes off. And I got just the way I am, I said to her. <laughs> do I actually have but she's so funny like and it was actually Nicole said to me when I left you should write a poem about that yeah. so I did and it was great it's fun. hilarious yeah uh, where can people catch the most up to date stuff that you may so like there's a website standnotcreations.ie there's a Facebook page and there's a, an Instagram page I'm actually talking to somebody at the moment who are trying to give me a hand because I'm so bad at updating social mm-hmm. media like it's just I've I don't know, it's a great tool, right? And, and lots of people like you guys use it really well. But I've just got, like, this sounds terrible. I've just got way more things, to, better things to be doing in my head. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Maybe so there's I've a student got, out there would like to oh, know Jesus, more. Oh, if there's anybody yeah. out there that would want to give me a hand, update on yeah, Facebook yeah. and Instagram, just give me a shout. I'd love to have somebody give yeah. me a hand. We'll leave all your links in yeah. the description of the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And listen, more than welcome. Thanks for traumatising me again. You're very welcome. Shattered after that. No, no, yeah. Listen, yeah. You, thanks for coming on. It's so open. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. That's very important what you just said there about bringing up emotions and stuff. And myself and James have spoke about it in the past when we do have guests on. Or how, how do we deal with people that have brought up? But what we usually do is we look at the person before we bring them on the show and, and mm. make sure that they're able to talk about their stuff, you know. Yeah. If it was somebody that we thought wouldn't be able to, yeah, you've got a lot of tools in your locker. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I don't get me wrong. I mean, that, that was, I mean, that's one of the things I do. I make, yeah. I, I do comedy as a deflection. I know, you know what I mean? we all do. I know we get it. But I'm always happy to to talk because it's good for me first yeah. and foremost. I know now that somewhere along the line tonight, there's been some bit of healing in there for me, yeah. and somebody's and, going to listen to this and please God and get a little bit of hope as well. And yeah. like that's the thing, my journey started with somebody else telling me their story. Exactly. And all along the way, whether it was Alan Quinlan or you know the workshops I've attended, or there's always somebody will say something to you in that in that environment. Where you kind of go, okay, mm. I, I, yeah. can, I can take something from that. Yeah. To a knowledge podcast style. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But thanks a million. No, you're more than welcome. Thank you, and Best of luck with it, lads. It's, a, it's an amazing project you're working on. And yeah. I hope it and, uh, keeps thank growing you very much. And, the boss, and thanks to the two ladies. You've been a lovely audience. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Ron. And it's everybody next week. Thanks, thank Ron. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike. 
preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.